hello, and welcome to Controlled Pod Into Terrain. We are a multimedia podcast about air and space mishaps and putting them into a broader context of how and why things went wrong. Now, some of you are here because you're a fan of Admiral Cloudberg's articles, and we want to let you know that this is not going to be a companion podcast to those articles, uh, but we do want to make sure that we capture the spirit that she writes with. We are a podcast with slides, but we're a different podcast with slides, and any similarity to other podcasts with slides is purely of a non-actionable kind. To introduce myself and my co-hosts, my name is Ariadne, and my pronouns are they and them. Jay? I'm Jay. I do system stuff, communication, software, and electronics. I'm the one with the fancy accent, and my pronouns are they and them. And last but not least, I'm Kira Dempsey, better known as Admiral Cloudberg, the aviation writer specializing in accident breakdowns, and my pronouns are she and her. All right. Today, we are going to be talking about Asian Airlines 214, uh, otherwise known as that one time the plane hit the seawall. That has gone very poorly. That has gone very poorly, yes. Uh, first, there's, there's not supposed to be a hole in the top of the plane. No. You know, normally. No, no. Gen- generally, planes only do that when they're very distressed. All right. Shall we kick this off? Yeah, let's do some sort of news thing. Okay. That's going to be the official name, isn't it? Some sort of news thing? Yeah, I think, I think so. It sounds, sounds good to me. Uh, and, and given the, uh, the sort of level of professionalism on this podcast, we wanted to have a, an image for our news that matched. Yes, this is this is Stable Diffusion's idea of a news show about um, planes. Uh, and so we're going to do some news about planes. All right. All right, the first thing we're going to talk about today is Alaska Airlines. Now, this was flight 1288. This was leaving from Seattle, uh, obviously Alaska's home base, and going to Santa Ana, Orange County. This is, this is John Wayne Airport. Uh, for those of you in the LA area, this is the Rich People Airport or the Disneyland Airport, depending on on how you look at it and whether or not you have a, your own driver. Uh, I guess it's, yeah, it's totally obvious when an airline called Alaska has its home base in Seattle. That's like completely intuitive and normal. It, it is very much so. Yeah, yeah. They their yeah. their presence in Alaska is actually more limited than you would think. Um, also, um, so this particular plane was trying to land um, on the very rare occasion that uh, SoCal had some weather. Um, it had some weather that completely caught it by surprise because, of course, SoCal doesn't have weather normally. Um, it just has hot and then it has damp. Um, but it, it, it never really has this, which was a tropical storm. Um, and it seems to have caused some problems for, uh, for this particular plane. Another yeah. victim of Hillary. Another victim of Hillary. Yeah. So this this obviously and that's dropped the casualty a casualty list. Her her kill list is is always expanding. The obviously the the wing seemed to have dipped on landing, um, pushing the landing gear up through the, the fuel tank. Now, obviously, this was very very lucky that there was no sort of fuel leakage, uh, but I think it's pretty clear that this aircraft is almost certainly never going to fly again. Yeah, it looks. I think the technical term for it is fucked. Yeah, this, yeah. It's, it's very fucked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this aircraft, I think, you know, if I assume this has been towed off of the, the runway and a ramp, uh, and it will probably be tented or to- towed into a hangar and dismantled in place. Yeah, I don't know how you actually go about 
moving a plane where um you know one of the landing gears has gone through the wing spar um i mean it's not like you can just jack it up no i'm pretty sure that's exactly what they do that's yeah that's literally what you are there there are designated jacking points under every aircraft right but i would imagine that one of those would be the mounting point for the for the the main gear right um which is presumably not structural anymore on this particular plane well i I would think that you know if you're not necessarily looking to care about the structural integrity you could probably mount it some here here on this wing box which looks to be relatively undamaged and obviously you're not going to do that on a functional aircraft because you would do serious damage to it but if the aircraft is already totaled and i think your top priority is just getting it the heck off the runway um you know you do what you have to I mean, as for the cause of this, we really don't know because it just happened. But what we do know is that people who are, are saying, oh, you know, the pilots simply should not have tried to land are barking up the wrong tree because the weather conditions reported for Santa Ana Airport at that time were fully within the Alaska company limits in terms of wind speed and direction and all of those sorts of things. So there's no reason to believe they shouldn't have attempted this landing. But we don't really know what went wrong. I think they just got unlucky, and um, as anyone who's ever played Kerbal Space Program can tell you, actually there's two ways to remove that that plane from the runway. Uh, one is, you know, jacking it up and putting a dolly underneath it. Um, the other is just to go to full power and try and fly it. <laughs> I, I think that would be a valid attempt, yeah. I think it would leave more debris than the airport management would be acceptable. Yep, quite possibly. Okay. All right, I think our next news story is another L for Moscow. Oh, boy. So first, we have the smashing success that is Chandrayaan-3. This was ISRO, so the Indian Space Research Organization, launched this and landed it. It was their second moon attempt. Uh, They did it for... $75 $75 million, and a lot of people are very fondly pointing out that this is a little less than half the cost of Interstellar, uh, and I would like to point out that it is also even lower than the much lower budget and much worse Ad Astra from 2019. $75 million. Not, how many Xboxes can you buy with that? <laughs> uh, I would say, yeah, it's it would be a few thousand. It's probably, I would say, $75 million would buy you all of the Xboxes in one in. At least one Best Buy, but probably not two of them. <laughs> now, yeah. on the other also, hand, we have Luna 25. This one came from the storied and historic Roscosmos. Proud pioneers in space. Obviously, the first man in space. The first man to walk outside. The first space station. Uh, first now, woman in space. First woman in space. Yeah, by decades, in fact. Yep. Okay. But like much else about Russia, it has seen better days. It has. Yes. So you you could call them the runners up in the moon race twice. Twice. Exactly. Yeah. These guys cannot stop coming second in the moon. Obviously, they did. They did make it to the moon. Now, as you can see uh, over here, this is an impact point. So this, if you were uh, playing Kerbal Space Program, is when you would press F5 to revert to orbit. Sadly, you can't do that in real life, as it turns out. I think maybe that was their plan. I just didn't know that. 
So there is a bit of a conspiracy theory going on about Luna 25. Now, the official story out of Roscosmos is that the vehicle made it into lunar orbit and was in process of entering its braking phase, where it fires retrograde uh, to circularize its orbit and, and sort of get out of a free return trajectory. And the story out of Roscosmos is that it fired its engine for too long and landed on the surface uh, with quite a bit more speed than it was expecting to. Litho breaking. Litho breaking. <laughs> now, the, the fact that this is a official story is kind of sad because what that means is this is the best excuse they could come up with was just pure incompetence. But it turns out it's very likely it was much worse than that. Roscosmos? Wait, okay, how? Explain. <laughs> because what happens is that Roscosmos publishes the radio frequencies that they'll be using for each mission. Basically, this is like their deep space network, only much older and much, much worse. Now, a lot of radio amateur radio astronomers saw the vehicle have a good translunar injection and then never heard from it again. So what it looks like is that the forget upper stage was in communication, was tracking correctly, and fired itself towards the moon on an impact trajectory. And then nothing ever happened. So it looks like the probe may have been dead either in orbit or may have even been dead on the launch pad. That would be embarrassing. It never woke up and it hit the moon at, at much higher than the five meters per second squared. Seems like one of your launch pad checks would be, is the probe working? Yeah, I mean, just to send you know, it a is, is it turned on? Yeah. <laughs> also, I got to say, I love how just by putting pictures of the two probes with flags on them, you've somehow made the Chandrayaan probe look like, you know, Swole Doge and the Luna 25 is clearly Cheems. Yes. Just from yes, the positioning. We have accidentally made a Cheems meme. And of course, obviously up in here, you have Zelensky, who is relentless in taking down his targets. Yeah, they, they actually hit this with a cardboard drone, knocked mm -hmm. it straight into the moon. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a, lot of people, a lot of people don't know that. Interesting, we're, we're taking a look at that. All right, and our last story is that the ALPA, so this is the Airline Pilots Association, this is uh, effectively the union for all pilots in the United States, has come out with a statement saying that they will support a two-pilot cockpit forever. And they're completely correct. Yeah, they're completely correct. I think. Yep. We have absolutely, absolutely no objections. Absolutely fine. To this. Yep. Okay. All right. No. I, oh, and I want to explain why for some people who are freaking <laughs> out about you know having one pilot in the plane, is so to have we have two pilots because if something happens to one pilot, it's still totally possible to fly the plane safely with just that one pilot. But if you have only one pilot to begin with, then you have to prove that you that can fly that the plane can fly itself with no pilots, without any decrease in level of safety. And if you've ever seen a self-driving car, which I know there are plenty of San Franciscans in this podcast crew, I know we have, the technology is a long way away. Right, and I think that we're gonna talk about fly-by-wire systems a lot in this podcast, a lot. And when necessary, I think we're, we'll bring in experts from whether they be software developers on the, on the, the programming side or actual pilots who fly these aircraft. Yeah. But, the, but a self-flying plane would be a totally different beast than fly-by-wire, which is yeah. a control I, system. But yeah, yeah, I think the, people have a, a sort of a false idea, I think, of how automated modern aircraft are. Yeah, they're not as, they're perhaps not as automated as you think. 
Well, I mean, this 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 particular one that you're uh, that you you chose the picture of the flight deck here. This is a, an Airbus A380. It's the absolute acme in automation, right up until the point where one of its uh, Trent 900 engines explodes, and suddenly the pilots get extremely busy trying not to crash the thing. Yeah, yeah. It, you got to be it, glad there were two pilots there and not yeah, one. Yes, seriously. Yeah, I think that's that's the other thing to, to mention is that it's not just the, the the aircraft's ability to fly itself that that is the issue at hand. It's the problem solving and and cockpit resource management, crew resource management, I should say, that that comes from having two people in the cockpit. And I don't think that's even possible to ever replace. Yeah, no. So I don't see the FAA ever approving single pilot operations for airliners. It's it's a it's a pipe it's a pipe dream by you know managerial people who don't understand airplanes. I, I think the very closest you will probably ever see is short haul cargo flights. I think of of an hour or two, you know, the types that go to places like Wells, Maine, or you know, rural North Dakota to, to service them. I think those may one day oh, go a lot to of things like that are already single pilot. Yeah. You know, if you're flying like a metro liner or something, those are approved for single pilot operations with cargo. Yeah, most of your caravan flights are, are all going to be single pilot, especially if you're flying somewhere in the bush. But yeah, you're not going to have one pilot in your A380 anytime soon. Thankfully. Thankfully. Okay. Let's talk about Asian Airlines. Is it any good? Uh, and on, on one particular day, it was it was not a great airline. It's, it's, you know... What about the rest of the time? You know, when they're not crashing? Well, I'll say, you know, that there are, there are travel and, and frequent flyer podcasts. We are not one of them. So I won't comment. I know that they're they're a fairly well done airline. I think they they get decent reviews, but I think we're going to talk about one time when maybe they weren't the best airline in the world. Yeah, six out of ten. The flight was totally good, but the landing was a little hard. Yeah, still better than Ryanair. Okay, so on this screen we have a helicopter, headphones, hospital, a car, an apartment building, and a theme park. Now, Jay. Would you mind taking a guess at what all of these items have in common? Ooh, is it that they're all made by the same family-owned conglomerate? They are indeed, yeah. This is the one of, this is a small portion of the products that are made by the Samsung Crime Syndicate. I'm sorry, the Samsung Family Corporation. AKA Chibol. AKA Chibol. Now, Jay, can you explain to us a bit about why Chibol is and why six companies control one of the largest economies in the world? It's kind of strange. So South Korea has a relatively short past as a, you know, a, a, a democratic market economy. Um, it's only really been that since actually the early 90s. Um, before that, it has been various different degrees of it's been various different degrees of dictatorship, dictatorship. It's a, it's been it's a, you've had a series of authoritarian military coups that have replaced each other, but none of them have really were, were really effectual at, at electing any sort of liberal reform until the right. very early nineties. Right. So the very early nineties, they started reforming their economy a little bit, but the problem was that by that point, so much of the economic activity in South Korea had been sort of. Well, if you look at the situation that currently exists in Russia, for example, where you have these oligarchs who own everything and then the government has to sort of suck up to them because they control so much of the economic 
and industrial output of the country that if any government was to try and go against them, then it, it would be really, really in big trouble. So you end up with this situation where there's a very few of these very large companies or, or groups of very closely related companies that are all owned by these same few families. It's different from a kairetsu that you have in Japan because those are generally sort of conglomerates of, of you know, businesses that have, m many of them have existed for, you know, hundreds of years. Chaibols tend to be newer than that. Korea doesn't really have such a long history of, you know, uh, empire and, and, and that kind of thing as Japan does. But what it did have is this very quick sort of land grab for these, these highly placed families to control a huge amount of the resources of the country. And it is quite a rich you know, sort of um, modern country in terms of the um, businesses and the industries that it supports. But in many ways on a government level, it's still actually kind of a feudal state. Someone who is an employee of one of these chaibols might spend their entire life working for the same company or the same overarching business management thing and you won't just work there i mean you'll be you'll be born in a hospital owned by samsung you will probably live grow up in an apartment block built by samsung you will go to university sponsored by samsung after which they will you will go work for samsung on vacation you'll go to the theme park on your days off you know have a samsung partner this no, is sort of a very real this is sort of a really very i got that it's sort of a very real uh, by and large, from Wally type model, right? Where you you have this is this is the future that people think Amazon is going to do one day. Just sort of own own every aspect. But you know this is it's happened in in Korea. It's they've been operating this way for you know almost thirty years now, and you have some very weird operations where you will have uh, Jay. Is it LG that makes plasma television or I'm sorry uh, OLED televisions and cancer drugs in the same division? Yep, yeah, that's LG Chem. Uh, L LG Chem makes lithium-ion batteries, cancer drugs, imaging supplies for hospitals, and also the chemicals that LG Display uses for making uh, OLED TVs. Yeah, they're they're actually the same, not just part of the same chaibol, but actually the same business unit. Right. So. The reason that all of this is relevant to what we're talking about is that Ariasiana was part of one of these conglomerates. And these conglomerates are operated by people that do not fundamentally understand the industries that they are running. So the decisions they make are almost entirely driven by an Excel spreadsheet. Right. So they'll, you know, they'll hire people who have experience in, you know, day-to-day -day running of an airline. But the executive decisions about, you know, how is this airline going to expand you know, what is what are its priorities going to be? Those are being made by, like, some guy. Yeah, and they, they might be not just some guy, but some fail son. Right, exactly. Yeah, I think if you, you know, if you watch Succession, 
Just imagine that. You know, just imagine the scene where Kieran Culkin doesn't understand how a rocket launch works and ends up blowing one up on a launch pad in Japan, and you kind of get an idea of how a chaibol works and how a fail sun might end up putting an airplane in multiple pieces on a runway. Not that not that any of these pilots were, to my knowledge, failed chaibol sons. <laughs> well, n- no, uh, we should say in a in a very legally correct way that we actually don't know anything about the people who run the Kumho group. The Kumho group was the chaibol that wanted to compete with Korean Air, KAL, which was owned by Hanjin Transportation. So they decided one day that they were going to have an airline and buy a bunch of planes. Um, They bought pretty good ones the Boeing 777, everyone agrees, it's, it's a pretty good plane. And they, um, they just decided to set up. And because these chai balls control such vast amounts of money, uh, they were able to actually get to the point where they were regularly operating flights because they didn't really have to borrow anything to do this because they controlled a major proportion of the Korean economy. Yeah, and I should point out that Korean before Asiana Airlines came along, Korean Air was the only South Korean airline. It was it was South Korea's Aeroflot, you might even say. So was it state owned? Um, no, no, it wasn't. It was owned by Hanjin Transportation, which yeah, which also owned tribal. the state, right? So then, no, I'm, but but the idea is there was there was no competition before Asiana Airlines, right. Right. Um, this didn't last, though, because uh, Hanjin Transportation ended up buying Asiana in 2020. Yeah, so now there's, there's really only one airline again. It just pretends that there's two. Did they not, uh, does South Korea not have like a budget carrier? They probably do. I just, I just can't name any off the top okay. of my head. Yeah, no, they, you're absolutely right. Asi- Asiana have... and Korean are, are their like main international presences. Yeah, and they're now, they're now on brand. They actually do have a couple of um, budget airlines. Um, we're going to talk about some of them later. Yeah. Oh, are we? Okay. Yeah, I think that this, I believe it's the Seoul to Busan route, I think may be the busiest air route in the world. Is it not a domestic route within Japan anymore? Yeah, I think it used to be, it used to be Tokyo Sapporo. Uh, I think that's, that's still very much in the top sort of three or five. We could look it up, but we're not that kind of podcast that does research live on the air. <laughs> Are we? <laughs> we could be. All right. So let's talk about this plane. And we're going to talk about this specific airframe because uh, 7, 742 was the one that, that broke into pieces. Yes. So the plane that you're seeing on your screen does not exist anymore. Until in, And furthermore, until this, there had never been a Boeing 777 accident. They, came out, they, they first entered service in the 1990s and they lasted... Decades. Well, over over 15 years without a yeah. fatal accident, in fact. Yeah, this is... Without even a whole loss accident, actually. Well, they had, no, there was British Airways Flight 38 in 2008. It was a whole loss, but there were no fatalities. And that was very distinctly not the air... That was not the 777's fault. That was the fault of the engine manufacturer. Yes. Specifically, I believe it was a fuel filter, but we're not going to talk about so British Airways today. The triple, okay, the 777 <laughs> was the last good Boeing plane. Okay, well, we can fight about that, but I mean, I think it, it's, yeah, it's no, subjectively. sorry, it was. We're going to do an episode one day just on the 787. So, but we're going to talk about the 777. 
We don't have much to say about it. It's just a really, really good airplane. This was the first full fly-by-wire aircraft Boeing ever built. It was famously the first aircraft that was ever designed 100% on a computer. They still brag about that. I don't know why, but they brag about it. Uh, if you have ever flown internationally, there's a pretty good chance you flew on one of these. But but not this one, because this one's I flew, I flew on one domestically, actually. But yeah, it's really a basic airplane. Wide body, two two aisles, two engines, two wings, a tail. You know, it's, it's not really that special. It's like when you think of an airplane, it probably looks something like the 777. Yeah, exactly. You know, Boeing... It, the 777 is a very large plane for a twin jet, though. Yeah, it's actually, it's it looks normal in photos, and then you'll see it next to other planes, and it's just grossly, disproportionately large, but it looks normal. Yeah, at what point, I believe, you know, maybe in the edit, we'll, we'll edit in a photo where you see that the engine on a 777 is larger around than the entire body on a 737 that well, you flew to Pensacola. No, not this but, 777. But newer, the newest one, yeah. Yeah. Obviously, the engines on this one got much, much smaller. Hmm. I think they, they got they got so more detached, I think. We, we will find, yeah. So this is, it's a deceptively long aircraft. It's a deceptively wide aircraft. Uh, the new 777X-1000, wherever, you know, if it ends or ever ends up coming out, uh, will actually probably have a fairly similar seating capacity to the old 747, which is what people think of as a huge airplane. So, Kira, where was this plane coming from? And where was it going to? Asiana Airlines Flight 214 was a regularly scheduled flight from Seoul Gimpo International Airport to San Francisco International Airport in San Francisco, California, across the Pacific. There were... How many people were on board this plane? It was a lot. Yeah, they had 291 passengers on board. So it was not actually quite full, but it was fairly close. And they had a cockpit crew of four, including two primary pilots and two relief pilots. So these pilots, they take shifts, right? Usually three and a half or four hours. Yes. So the, the primary captain was an instructor, Lee Jung Min, 49 years old. And he was, and during the takeoff and landing, he was seated in the right seat, the first officer's seat, because he was fulfilling the role of a Czech and instructor captain on the flight for a trainee captain who was 45-year-old Lee Kang Kook, who sat, who was the primary, who flew from the left seat on takeoff and landing while receiving his initial operating experience, which is he had just transferred to the Boeing 777 from the Airbus A320, and he was being checked out for the, the captain. He was going straight from captain on the A320 to captain on the 777. So he had just finished training, and he was doing his inter initial operating experience where he flies regular line flights with real passengers, under the supervision of an instructor who replaces the first officer. In addition to these two, there were also the two relief crew. There was 52-year-old relief captain Lee Jung-ju and 40-year-old relief first officer Bong Dong-wan. So those two flew during the middle of the flight, and then during the approach, first officer relief first officer Bong Dong-wan actually would come back into the cockpit to act as a third set of eyes because the right seat instructor captain, Lee Jung-min, is, um, he has dual duties. He's the pilot m monitoring, but he's also instructing, and that can be very distracting, so it's helpful to have that third set of eyes there to catch things that he may miss because he is busy, you know, monitoring the, cap the trainee captain's performance extra closely. 
in his case in particular, it was even more distracting on the grounds that this was actually the first time he'd flown as an instructor. Yes, he had never done this before. He had just finished being checked out as an instructor, and he had never instructed a trainee on an actual line flight before. And that's going to become important later. Yeah, So, but these guys were not necessarily... Some of them were new to the airframe, but they were not necessarily new to being pilots. These are guys with thousands of hours of flying time, presumably, right, Kira? Yeah, yeah. So the, even the trainee captain Lee Lee, jo- Lee Kang Kook is his name. He um he had he had thousands of hours. I can't tell you how much exactly. Oh, he had over nine thousand over nine thousand flying hours. <laughs> but he had only forty three on the Boeing triple seven. So he was about as new as you can get. He almost all his hours were on the a- Airbus A three twenty. Yeah, and Which I is think a I, much smaller plane. It's also an entirely different kind of aircraft, right? So right. an Airbus to a Boeing is a massive differential because you are going to a completely new fly-by-wire system, a whole new control system. We will also, at some point, when we talk about fly Airbus crashes and fly-by-wire, we'll have to talk about the different sort of levels of protection that Airbus offers in a way that yeah. Boeing does not. But basically, Airbus has a totally different philosophy of control of the airplane than Boeing does. Yeah. And that's what that's what's really important. You don't need to know the details yet. But we may get into some of them. Yeah. Alright. So Jay, what are we looking at? This is the West Plan. By West Plan I mean that this is the complicated set of aircraft movements that makes the three major airports in the San Francisco Bay Area, you can see them there, SFO, Oakland, and San Jose, they're all within 50 miles of each other. Um, And as a consequence, movements of planes in and around the bay can get really quite complicated. Yeah, so it would be a lot simpler if you could just, you know, come in and land at SFO from the west and you know totally not have to think about Oakland and San Jose to the east right except you can't because there's a line of 800 foot hills immediately west of SFO so it's not practical to land from the west you have to come in either from the southeast or the northeast so either directly from San Jose or directly from Oakland are where those runways point back to and so in fact most traffic has to especially traffic com- traffic coming from the west to SFO has to loop around the airport, dodging the Oakland and San Jose approach corridors, and then come back around and land on one of the two parallel um, runways from the southeast. This gets even worse if you have to do a, a go-around, because if there's any amount of traffic, and there is always traffic around SFO, it's a very busy airport with cr- kind of crappy runways, if you have to do a go around, you're going to get delay vectors and you're going to have to go all the way around the pattern to to make another attempt at landing. Um, it could be half an hour, 45 minutes before you get your chance at landing again. Also, not picture on this map, there are two other, there are two major U.S. Air Force bases that are, would be in, within the boundaries of this map and Moffett Field and Ames Research Center, which is a NASA facility and a civilian airport about three and a half feet outside of San Jose. So this is an extremely busy air corridor with very, very narrow parameters on what, op- what operations can be done. 
don't forget the airfield, the the general aviation airfield in Palo Alto. There's there's one there as well. Yeah. So the this this is one of the factors that makes approaching San Francisco Airport challenging. But there are there. So one of the, one of the things that SFO is infamous for is when you're flying to SFO, you get you get vectored in hot and high, which basically means you are left to descend a little more steeply than normal because when you when you loop around to pick up the approach path from the south into SFO from the southeast, you have to stay above the planes that are approaching Oakland, and then you have to drop drop quickly, and so you have to lose a lot of speed and altitude simultaneously, and that can be potentially tricky, which is something that is going to become important. The approach is also over water, which can make it difficult, uh, especially if you're, you know, maybe in your uh, period of circadian low, as you might be if you've just flown across the, the Pacific. You know, you try and avoid this. That's why they have this five hour break in the middle with the relief captain and relief first officer flying the plane. But still, you don't necessarily sleep that well and you don't necessarily feel all that refreshed while you're doing it. And that can make it very difficult to judge the distance because, you know, water is kind of featureless. The other thing is that the western side of the city uh, of the actually the whole San Francisco Peninsula is quite often covered in fog and that can make it very difficult to orient yourself while you're approaching it from that other side because you can't really see the city. You can't see the big sort of landmarks like the Golden Gate um, when you're approaching it from the other side. Yeah, so quite often SFO Airport is in the clear and they're doing visual approaches, but like everything from immediately west of the airport out is completely socked in with zero visibility. To make matters worse, on the day we're talking about, which is the 6th of June, 2013, the instrument landing system on runway 28 left and 28 right, which is where planes were landing that day, was partially inoperative. So they had been recently expanding those runways, which meant they had to remove and relocate the instrument landing system equipment. And they had, by the time that this takes place, they had only put back in the localizer, which provides lateral guidance to align with the runway automatically. They had not put back in the glide slope, which provides vertical guidance. So when you're normally flying an instrument landing system approach, the autopilot can lock on to the glide slope and the localizer and follow this perfect, roughly three degree descent path straight to the runway with relatively minimal help. But if you don't have the glide slope, then you can align with the runway, but the pilot has to manually achieve that three degree flight path angle. And that can be that can be tricky. It's something that is really basic to flying and every pilot is sort of expected to be able to do, but it's not intuitively easy. And you may not have done it quite recently because a lot of air airlines actually mandate that you use as much of this automation as possible. Or at least they did at that time. Asiana Airlines did. They said all automation, the, you know, automation must be used to the fullest extent. So trainee captain Lee Kang-kook, he had never actually flown 
an approach in the real Boeing 777 without a glide slope before. He had not never done it. He had maybe done it in a simulator. But that was it. What gets even better is that the two runways, 28 left and 28 right, at SFO are actually too close together. They're less than 300 feet centerline to centerline. And so as a result of that, simultaneous operations of these two runways are only allowed if the full ILS is operating, which means that traffic was even more backed up than usual that yeah. day. Because San Francisco is famous for doing those simultaneous approaches where it looks like the two planes are in formation flying all the way down to the ground. And that helps, you know, obviously that being able to do that near doubles the capacity in terms of airplanes for per hour that can be landed at the airport. So this was you know, there was some pressure to not not screw this up because you would have to go way back in line, even worse than usual. And of course, the go around is very spicy because of those 800 foot high hills. And if you don't have perfect guidance, uh, you might end up buzzing uh, Daly City or San Bruno, uh, as has, in fact, happened in the past. Yes. I used to live in Daly City, and I could see those planes coming fairly low overhead all the time. But usually just after takeoff, I never saw any super low on a go-around or anything like that. Should we talk about the autopilot a little bit? Um, so let's, let's, get, let's, let's set the stage. So it's the middle of the day, it's sunny, and except for the fog that is covering over San Francisco... So Lee Kang Kook, the trainee captain, is in the left seat. Um, instructor captain Lee Jung Min is in the right seat, and Relief First Officer Bong Dong Wan is in the observer seat. So they they come around. They are discussing, you know, oh, what San Francisco landmarks can we see? Listen, this is Lee Kang Kook's first time in San Francisco as well. So he's like, "Is that the Golden Gate Bridge?" But he's pointing at the Bay Bridge, and Lee Jung Min is like, "No." They are vectored in around to the southeast of the airport for a, what they expect to be a visual approach to runway 28 left um, using the localizer but no glide slope and if you if you remember the the west plan slide from earlier it, it's the teal line yes so yeah that one so they get to they get to about 6,000 feet and they're starting to line up with the localizer and so far so good. Now once they are aligned with the localizer they need to maintain that three degree glide slope. So how do you do this? And this is a thing called energy management which is basically you keep keeping the plane on the glide path you want and at the speed you want and doing both of those things simultaneously is what makes it so tricky. When you descend, normally, you are turning potential energy into kinetic energy, which will cause your speed to increase. But you have just come from cruising speed, and you want to get down to landing speed. So you have to both descend and decelerate. You have to time all of your configuration changes in order to progressively increase drag on the airplane faster than the descent attempts to cause your speed to increase. So... So there's this there's this constant balancing act that goes on and so the way that this works on the triple seven is 
the pilot uses the mode control panel, or MCP, which is shown here, to select autopilot and autothrottle modes that help them achieve the best combination of pitch angle and thrust to both maintain speed and maintain the glide path at the um, in the desired configuration. So basically, you can modify both speed and trajectory of an airplane using either thrust or pitch. So you can pitch up to go up, or you can pitch down to go down, but more commonly you can pitch up to speed to slow down, or pitch down to speed up. And then you can also use thrust to by to accelerate to go up or decelerate to go down or you can use or you can increase thrust to increase speed or decrease thrust to decrease speed so there are, these are the at speed and pitch each of them can be used to control either so thrust or pitch can, each can be used to control either speed or the other thing is that your pitch will change when you change your your engine power level as well because the the engines are not they thrust off axis in line with the center of mass yeah they thrust off axis so when you when you throttle up the plane is going to sit up a little bit more and when you throttle down it's it's going to go the other way a little bit right so what you want to do is use an autopilot mode that best fits the descent profile you're going for. The desired trajectory. Right, right. So we're going to discuss a couple of the autopilot modes and the autothrottle modes that couple with them. So vertical speed mode is an important autopilot mode on approach. So in this mode, the autopilot pitches the plane up or down in order to achieve a climb or descent rate selected by the crew in the MCP, for example, minus 1,000 feet per minute. And... Um, so if the so basically that's that's pitch controls um, vertical rate, right? Um, and when the autopilot is in vertical speed mode, normally the auto throttle, which can the automatic engine thrust control, will switch to speed mode. And in speed mode, the auto throttle increases or decreases engine thrust in order to achieve an airspeed selected by the crew in the MCP. So again, vertical speed and speed modes. Um, pitch modifies the descent or climb rate. Engine thrust modifies the airspeed. And then, but you can also do the exact opposite of that with flight level change speed mode. And this is a mode in which the autopilot can will pitch the plane up or down in order to achieve an airspeed selected by the crew in the MCP. Well, again, the exact opposite, the auto throttle will go into thrust mode in which it will increase thrust to gain altitude or decrease thrust to lose altitude. And so in um in flight level change change speed mode is primarily used for exactly what it says, changing flight level. So if you're at like 20,000 feet and you want to go up to 25,000 feet, you can enter 25,000 feet in the M mode control panel, select flight level change speed mode, and the airplane will climb, Will the auto throttle will accelerate to climb to that altitude while the autopilot modifies the pitch of the airplane to maintain the same airspeed. And the vertical, the vertical rate is not directly controlled. That's what, but if you want to directly control the vertical rate, that's what you use vertical speed mode for. 
So, so thinking about thinking about this, the vertical speed is one leg of a right triangle, and the horizontal speed is the other leg, and you want the hypotenuse to be at three degrees. Yeah, and it sounds like here, like what what you're doing with this panel is kind of the way you described is there there is a way to tell the aircraft what you want it to do: go up or go down, go up or you know. Ec- and another that tells you how to do it. So either with presumably the elevator trim or the throttle. So here's what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to do it, right? So is it, you basically have four four, four squares on a bonnet square? Yep. So the, um, yeah, the pilot will typically do a few things during this approach. They will select vertical modes and they will enter airspeeds and altitudes using the airspeed and altitude windows in the mode control panel. And the autothrottle will typically change mode automatically. The pilot, and during a normal approach, the pilot won't be manually switching the autothrottle, or they shouldn't be, because the autothrottle will change modes automatically to complement the autopilot mode, autopilot vertical mode that you have selected. So then... Sorry to interrupt, but will these work on any sort of auxiliary systems? Meaning, will the aircraft deploy its own flaps or, or the spoilers? No, it will not. You have to do that. Okay. So then lastly, last but not least, there's another auto throttle mode that's not thruster speed, and that's called hold mode. And this is basically, this this just means the auto throttle motor is disconnected from the thrust levers, so it can't make any inputs. So unlike on an Airbus, on a Boeing, the way that the auto throttle works is it has this motor that physically moves the thrust levers for you, and then that that modifies the engine thrust. But in hold mode, that motor is disconnected from the thrust levers, so it just can't do anything. And the way that hold mode, you can get into hold mode is, well, there are basically two main ways. One of them is if the pilot overrides the autothrottle and moves the thrust levers manually, the autothrottle will enter hold mode because then it's clear that the pilot wants to make inputs themselves and not the autothrottle. And the other way is if the vertical mode is flight level change speed, thrust levers are determining um, whether you go up or down, right? If you're in, so if you're in flight level change speed and the the f- selected flight level is so far below your current flight level that the auto throttle pulls the thrust levers all the way back to idle, flight idle, which is the minimum flight thrust position in flight then it will also enter hold mode and it will just leave the thrust levers there at flight idle until some new mode is selected or until the um until the the mcp selected altitude is reached so if you're in flight level change speed and you've selected an altitude 5000 feet below you it will the auto throttle will pull the thrust lever back to hold mode and the plane will just descend in an open descent until it re- it approaches 5000 feet then it will wake back up and it will and the auto throttle will um, come out of hold mode and accelerate the thrust levers to level you off. Okay, I think we understand that. But surely the pilots weren't just told, hey, land on this runway. There, there has to be a, a procedure for doing one of, these, one of these landings without a glide slope, right? So, yeah, they're flying a visual approach, which is, is literally just you... I see the runway. It's over there. Yeah, you see the runway, and then you try to descend at the um, appropriate, um, along the appropriate with the appropriate flight path angle. Again, about three degrees, 
And it's like, you just do that. You have a great, you have fairly good leeway in terms of how, although there's usually a correct answer. So like, you know, but we're going to get into that, what the pilots actually did versus what they probably should have done. So again, let's go back to the flight itself. Right now, we'll pick them up as they are descending through 5,300 feet. Um, and they have just come down off that hot and high approach because they're going over the top of the approach path into Oakland. So they're in flight level change speed mode to descend to their cleared flight level. And the, th the auto throttle has pulled the thrust levers all the way back to idle to make that descent work. So the auto throttle is in hold mode and the pilots have selected a target speed in the mode control panel of 212 knots, and the autopilot is maintaining this by pitching up or down to modify their speed. So, so it's at this moment that they are told by the air traffic control, hey, could you reduce airspeed to 180 knots to you know keep your place in the approach pattern without you know, overrunning the aircraft in front of you. So this is a pretty routine request, and it wasn't it wasn't an extreme request or anything like that. So immediately, the um, trainee captain, Lee Kang-Kook, he reaches up to the mode control panel and he dials in 180 knots as the target airspeed. So, so to slow the plane down, they're in flight level change speed mode. To slow the plane, the autopilot is gonna do what? It's gonna pitch the nose up so it does. And immediately this causes them to begin ballooning above that three degree glide path. And this is a problem because they had they had discussed, you know, okay, we want to cross the waypoint due yet at a distance of 5.4 nautical miles from the runway at an altitude of 1800 feet as shown in the slide. And you know, now they have this handy feature on their navigation display, which shows them exactly what trajectory they have versus the ideal three degree glide path. And it's clearly showing, hey, you're going to go above it. You're gonna actually going to go, you're going to go way above it. So what do you do in this situation? The correct answer is you need more drag on the airplane because the, the thrust levers are already at idle. You can't reduce thrust any more than they are, than it already is. And if you want to, so if you want to decelerate to 180 knots without going above the glide slope, you need to increase drag on the airplane by deploying the speed brakes. But the, they don't do this. In fact, the pilots are not going to deploy the speed brakes at any point during this approach, which is, is very interesting. You know, I've had pilots ask me, you know, why does this keep happening? Why does it seem like in some of these crashes, pilots just don't ever, doesn't ever seem to occur to them to deploy the speed brakes? And we really don't know. But they did not. Now, Kira, can we can we talk about what it means to get behind the aircraft, right? So, so we've kind of touched on energy management, right? So you have you have potential energy if you have altitude, you have kinetic energy if you have forward speed, and we're sort of yeah. we're constantly balancing that. And obviously, jet engines they don't they don't respond immediately. Now, some of you drive gasoline cars, some of you have electric cars, which are even more responsive. But you're sort of used to you push the gas pedal and it moves immediately. Jet engines do not do this. From the time you give them a command to the time they are providing the amount of thrust you've requested can be a few seconds. And a well, few that's going to become is, relevant yes. very late in this flight. Very late in that flight. It's not relevant yet. Exactly. Yeah. But but we're going to talk about something called getting behind the aircraft. And and obviously, as Kira's going through this, this is an energy management equation, right? You need to bleed off energy in, in and turn that into friction and heat. 
and you need to descend the aircraft and you sort of always need to be planning ahead because you you sort of every every action has an equal amount of reaction if you speed up you will gain altitude and as sort of curious walking you through the, the ways that they're not shedding speed they're starting to get behind the aircraft meaning that they are the things are happening faster than they are able to to keep up right and this begins to happen once you know, you're off course, and now you have to play catch-up to try to get back on course, but things are continuing to happen listen to, at the same rate that they normally do with this added task on top. So so the confusion is going to begin to mount as we go through here. So they have begun to deviate above the glide path, and because the autopilot has pitched up to slow them down, and they can fix this by deploying the speed brakes, which increase drag on the wings, but they don't do that. Instead, the trainee captain, Lee Kang-Kook, switches the vertical mode of the autopilot to vertical speed mode. And in this, so in, if you recall, in this mode, the autopilot will um, pitch down to achieve the descent rate that he has selected in the, in the mode control panel. And the auto throttle will um, either reduce or increase thrust to achieve the MCP selected airspeed. So, this isn't going to solve the problem because the okay the autopilot is going to begin pitching down to you know achieve the descent rate he has selected which is minus a thousand feet per minute but the auto throttle has already held pinned the thrust levers at idle which is the lowest they can go so it can't reduce thrust any further so because they're now pitching down more the airspeed is going to increase so the airspeed never reduces to the selected MCP speed of 180 knots. It gets down to about 185 knots, and then it starts going up, which is not what they want. And are they are they discussing in the cockpit? Right. So are we using CRM? Are we are we trying to figure out a problem? No, not not really. There's not really. So there's basically a discussion that's like you know somebody says, "Hey, you're high," and Lee Kang Kook goes, "Oh, I'm high. Okay, I will descend more." You know, that's basically, that's the extent of the CRM that's going on here. Okay, and is it, do we think, what's the culture inside the cockpit? Because I know we, we are, we have a, a rookie captain on an entirely new airframe that he's very inexperienced with, with a Czech airman, right? So this is a person that he knows is is grading him. That's not, it's, it's effectively holding a clipboard, right? Yeah. You know, and he, so he's he's obviously nervous about, you know, can he do it right? But then the instructor is also himself uncertain of what his, his own role is because it's his first time instructing. And so, you know, he's like, how much, you know, he's think, probably thinking, how much guidance do I give do I give him? Do I tell him, no, you're doing it wrong. You should do it this way. You know, he doesn't really give very much guidance. He's sort of watching as the trainee captain, Lee Kang-Kook, you know, makes these mistakes. And it's not totally clear whether the extent to which he's aware of them, but he's probably aware to some degree that, you know, he's not doing things right, but he's not saying anything. He's just quietly grading. And so anyway, they begin trying to extend the the flaps and landing gear because these both also substantially increase drag because their speed is now increasing with the thrust levers at idle. You know, that's 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 a problem because in fact as you um you know as the plane is is descending and now its speed is increasing away from the target speed it's it's now it's it's going to overshoot the altitude by the you know planned altitude at the waypoint do yet the final approach fix by even more than before 
because if you're going faster, you need to have a higher descent rate in order to achieve the three degree glide path, just because you know, you're covering more ground in less time. So you need to descend at a faster rate, obviously. Now, so, okay, we can, so you have to increase drag. They increase drag by deploying the landing gear and beginning to deploy the flaps. And, um, you know, to, this isn't enough even by itself. So Lee Kang-Kook also increases the vertical speed to minus 1500 feet per minute. This is immediately after um, he says, okay, I will descend more. So now they actually start descending at a pretty good clip. They are descending toward the the glide path. You know, they're quite high above it, but they are coming, you know, the trend line is good. And their speed is decreasing. So it's like, okay, we're back on track, right? But this is where Lee Jung-min, the instructor captain, suddenly comes in. He says, you know, change your vertical speed back to minus 1,000 feet per minute because he thinks, you know, we're getting pretty close to the three-degree glide path. We should not be descending this quickly. And it's not entirely clear to me why he did this so early, but it was too early to do this. They had not reached the optimal glide path yet, and in fact, when Lee Kang-Kook put the MCP vertical speed back to 1,000 feet per minute, minus 1,000 feet per minute, they started buoying up above the glide, the optimal glide path again, which was predictable. Yeah, the official accident report doesn't actually go into any real detail behind why he, why did he make this, this call at that moment, but I think he may have seen, you know, okay, we're finally in a relatively high drag condition, you know, but we need to get on with extending the flaps more, and the flaps are airspeed limited. So, you know, each notch on the flaps that you extend, you have to be below a certain airspeed or else you, you, will, you will overspeed the flaps. You'll potentially even damage them. So at one point here, they're decelerating and the trainee captain, Lee Kang-Kook, calls for more flaps. And Lee Jung-Min says, you know, I can't give you that because we're flying too fast. So his decision to decrease the vertical speed back up to minus 1,000 from minus 1,500 may have been because um, he wanted to make sure they bled off speed faster, airspeed faster, in order to extend the flaps on time. Because obviously if you're descending at a higher vertical speed, your airspeed is also going to increase because you're trading more potential energy for more kinetic energy. So he did this and he was able to extend the flaps more, but now they're too hot, they're on track to be too high again. They're, they're, they're still going to overshoot the runway. And so what happens, so what happens next? They cross the Duyet waypoint at 2,250 feet instead of 1,800 feet like they wanted. So they're 450 feet too high at the final approach fix. At, a, at this point, if you're 450 feet too high at the beginning of the final approach phase... Call a go-around! Yeah, you should you should go around. I mean, you can in some. It is physically possible to salvage an approach after that, but like you shouldn't. You know, <laughs> it's it's not always possible, and sometimes you know you just you end up digging a bigger hole for yourself. Yeah, this is this is an aircraft that at this point probably weighs three hundred and fifty thousand pounds, right? So this is a lot of kinetic energy that this is. It, and it doesn't 
it has a lot of inertia and it does not respond well to to sudden asks yeah so also so around this point as they reach the um the final approach fix at do yet the they call the um they decide oh it's they realize oh it's time to set the mcp target altitude in case of to the go around altitude in case we have to go around later and this is standard procedure on every approach ominous you <laughs> yes you set the um you, you set the target go-around altitude, which for this approach into SFO was 3,000 feet. You set that in the MCP window. And at this point in the approach, as in fact they are, the vertical mode of the autopilot should be vertical speed with a negative descent rate selected. So, and if you're in vertical speed and descending and you select an MCP target altitude that's above your current altitude, it's not going to do anything because the um, in vertical speed mode, the vertical speed takes priority. So if it's not going to, the autopilot isn't suddenly going to ignore the fact that you want a negative vertical speed in order to climb to the selected MCP altitude. It's just, it's just going to ignore the MCP altitude and you're going to keep descending, which is in fact what they wanted it to do. And that's why you can set the go around altitude in advance. And the purpose behind doing that is so that if you suddenly have to go around, you can select go around mode and the autopilot will automatically climb the plane to 3,000 feet, the go-around altitude, without you having to even think about it. And, um, and so, you know, everything is fine with that, right? But we're about to get back to that in like a few seconds here. So they're still above the glide path. The um, tra trainee captain calls for flaps 30 to... You know, you progressively increase the the flap angle as you slow down, and right, so you can maintain lower lower speed flight and increase drag and bleed off your speed, right. But the um, instructor captain says, "No, I can't give you flaps 30. We're too fast." Still, so at this point, the tra trainee captain Lee Kankook he needs to do something about the situation. So what does he do? He decides he gets the incredibly genius idea. I'm going to select flight level change speed mode. <laughs> and why? Is, and we still have not... For the love of God, why? And, and nobody has found the spoiler handle yet. No, nobody has touched the spoiler handle. In fact, no, nobody touches the spoiler handle this entire, this entire flight. So what he really needed to do right now, if he was going to try to salvage this approach, which he shouldn't have, but he could have, maybe, if he was good was deploy the speed brakes, increase drag on the plane, bleed off that speed, and then you can get flaps 30, and that'll increase drag even more, and it'll be this nice positive feedback loop that gets you slowed down nicely to where you want to be, while also descending to where you want to be. But he doesn't. He selects flight level change speed mode, and this is just a terrible idea, and we don't really know why he did this. Like, in interviews after the accident, he said, well, I thought, you know, if I selected flight level change speed mode, then the, um, the auto throttle would decrease thrust more, but... That's obviously impossible because thrust lever, the thrust levers were at flight idle. They couldn't go any lower. They'd been at flight idle this entire time. So that, that logic never made any sense to me. But, so we don't, we don't really know why he did this. But he selected flight level change speed mode. And obviously, what does that do? <laughs> you know, the autopilot in flight level change mode goes, okay, what is the MCP target altitude? Oh, it's 3,000 feet. That's above current altitude. Therefore, we must climb. <laughs> That's the so, wrong direction. You're going. You're going the wrong way. Yes, yes. So the autopilot pitches pitches the nose up 
to um to climb to three thousand feet. It's slightly ironic that if he'd just let it do it and did a go around, everything would have been fine. Yeah, we're, we're going to yeah. use this phrase a lot on this podcast, but this would have been the perfect time to just call for a go around. And, and, and listeners, a lot of airlines, in fact, I would say the majority of airlines at this point, have what's called a no questions asked go around policy, which means that if the captain of an, of, of, a, of an aircraft or the pilot in command calls for a go around, that's the end of the discussion. The chief pilot will not talk to them. They will not. There's not going to be a write-up. Nothing. Nobody asks questions. You just do the go-around. You don't even have to report it afterwards. Yeah. So, so the the autopilot. Yeah. Right. So as soon as he selects flight level change speed mode, the autopilot pitches up to um to slow the plane, and the auto throttle increases thrust to climb to the selected go-around altitude of three thousand feet. And this is not what he wants at at all. So within seconds. Training Captain Lee Kang-Kook disconnects the autopilot, um, pitches down manually, and then grabs the thrust levers and moves them to, to back to flight idle where they were before. So as soon as he does this, the plane actually begins to descend fairly rapidly because he is pitching down more than the autopilot was, and he's got the thrust levers back to idle, and now and they're in a fairly high drag configuration now with all these flaps. So they begin to descend at quite a quite a rapid clip, um, which is what they want. <laughs> and I just, again, so so this is something that we, we just keep saying is they can, they could have still salvaged it at this moment, right? So if they had yeah. said, again, they right shouldn't about, have tried. Right about but here. It was possible. If these guys had said, hey, we're going to try and salvage this. We're in high drag configuration. Start putting this, start pulling everything back, pull the flaps back in, increase the thrust. They could have salvaged this. It was not. This yes. was not a sure thing yet. Yeah, right. Again, they shouldn't have tried, but they could have. Yeah. They could have done it. But that would so, have required that but, they be ahead of the aircraft. They had missed, but they had missed one key thing that just happened. So do you remember what one of the conditions for um, the autothrottle entering hold mode was? That's when the pilot overrides the autothrottle. It will go into hold mode, disconnecting the autothrottle motor from the thrust levers. So as soon as Lee Kang-Kook Pulled the th- manually pulled the thrust levers back to idle, the autothrottle went into hold mode. And there are two ways to get it out of hold mode. One is you select a new... Um, or th- There are three ways. One is you select a new autopilot vertical mode. So if he switched to... You know, if he switched the autopilot back on, he had disconnected it and changed it to vertical speed or whatever, the autothrottle would have come out of hold mode. Alternatively... Um, it would have come out of of hold mode if they had an MCP target altitude set below their current altitude and the autopilot engaged, but they did not have that. And the other way would be to change the autoflight st- s- overall system status. So by that I mean, is the autopilot on or is it off or are the flight directors on? And the flight directors are the overlay or overlays on the pilot's um, displays which tell them basically where to fly, you know, up, down, left, right, and it's they're meant to make it easier to manually fly, hold, an, to manually hold an aircraft trajectory. And so when you switch the autopilot off on the trip on the triple seven like this, it defaults to flight director mode. So this happened before the autothrottle went into hold mode, though. So now they needed to change one way to get the autothrottle out of hold mode was to change the auto flight status from flight director to something else, perhaps off. And actually it was standard procedure 
Adam, Asiana, at this point in the approach to turn the flight directors off because they're no longer needed once you have visual contact with the runway. And um, so the instructor captain, Lee Jung-min, turns off um, Lee Kang-kook's flight director because he asked him to, but he doesn't turn off his own flight director. So the, the, auto, the system does not register a um, system status change. It's still in flight director mode. So the autothrottle stays in hold mode. And actually he was supposed to have turned off both of their flight directors, which if he had done this, the autothrottle would have woken up from hold mode, but he didn't and it did not. So they so now they're in a, they're descending with the autothrottle in hold mode, which means the the thrust levers are locked at flight idle unless the pilot moves them manually. And they will not move from that mode, that position, automatically unless one of the aforementioned things happens. So so now they have the MCP target airspeed. They have selected, at this point, they select the target airspeed as um, the landing reference speed plus five knots, So which is known as VREF plus five. And that's basically the speed you want to have right up until you flare for a touchdown. And in this case, they had calculated that to be 137 knots. So Lee Kang-kook put 137 knots into the MCP and he fully expected that as they decelerated toward that speed, the autothrottle would kick in and maintain that speed. But now because it was in hold mode, it was not going to do that. The autothrottle can't do anything in hold mode, but he's not aware of this. And so now they're in a situation where their speed is decreasing because they are now in a very high drag configuration with all their flaps out and landing gear and everything else. And and their, their airspeed is decreasing and it's not going to stop at VREF plus five unless the pilot actively intervenes, but he thinks that it will that it will stop there automatically because he has not noticed that the autothrottle has gone into hold mode. In fact, neither of the pilots has noticed this. The instructor captain called out the change in autopilot status from autopilot to flight director, but he, he seemed to be distracted by that and did not notice the autothrottle mode change to hold mode. What about the guy in the jump seat? So he didn't notice this either. No, he's he's watching and he's you know he's looking at the situation. Yeah, is, he just, is he just playing Angry And actually Birds? at this point his focus is on the vertical speed because he's seeing the, you know hey we're getting relatively close to that three degree glide path and we're descending at a pretty pretty high rate. You know they were descending at over minus 1800 feet per minute at this point because they're high drag and thrust levers at idle and captain is pit- the trainee captain is pitching down. So he actually says, you know, hey, you should not be descending so quickly. You know, he says, actually, sink rate, sir. But as, as this is happening, instructor ca- the, the train- sorry, trainee captain Lee Kang-kook is looking at the precision approach path indicator lights on the runway, which tell him whether he's too high or too low. So basically, there's a set of four lights, which can be either white or red. If two of them are white and two of them are red, great, you're on the three-degree glide path. If they're, all, if they're all red, you're too low. If they're all white, you're too high. Three white and one red, you're slightly too high. Three red and one white, you're slightly too low, right? So he's looking at this, and he's seeing, you know, we are actually, we are very high right now. He was seeing four white lights. And so, you know, he was, he really wanted to keep descending more. And so the, the relief pilot observing is repeatedly calling out sync rate. You know, you're descending too fast. 
So now he's he's really in a bind. Again, this is why they should have just gone around. It's not an easy situation to solve. And right around this time, they, you know, they get clearance to land and they reach 500 feet, which is the point at which they have to be fully stabilized for landing. You know, and that means you must be, they must be in in landing configuration within five to 10 knots of the target um, landing reference speed, VRF plus five, 137 knots, with an appropriate thrust setting on a trajectory that will require no further significant control inputs. Now, coincidentally, a couple of these things happen to be met at that exact moment. They are actually, they hit 500 feet right as they cross the three degree glide path. So, hey, they've gotten back onto the correct altitude that they should be at momentarily. So on glide path, check. Within five to 10 knots of the target speed, actually also check. They've, they've pretty much reached VRF plus five at this point. So they're at about 137 knots right as they cross 500 feet. So on speed, check. In landing configuration, landing gear is out, flaps are fully extended, check. They're in landing configuration. Appropriate thrust setting, no, they do not have the appropriate thrust setting. At this point, when you're in a high drag configuration like this with all landing gear and flaps fully out, you actually need a fairly high thrust setting to be able to maintain the three degree glide path. Whereas earlier, they need they, they weren't even able to maintain the three degree glide path with the thrust levers at idle. That was because they didn't have any drag on the airplane. They didn't have any flaps, landing gear, anything. Now that they have all of that, the drag is so much more. They actually need a fair amount of thrust to maintain that glide path, but they they don't. So that is eh, strike. That's not not a stabilized approach. Furthermore, they have to be on a trajectory that will require no further significant control inputs, but they are descending at well over a thousand feet per minute still at this point. And that is much too fast. So they will need to make significant control inputs to avoid landing short of the runway. So again, mm, not stabilized. Yeah. A safe landing speed for the triple seven is probably around 100 to 150 feet. Per yeah, minute. and that, and it'll be more than that until right before the flare. But, but yeah, 1,000 minus 1,000 feet per minute, way too fast. And um, and so this approach is not stabilized. They are if their approach is not stabilized at 500 feet, they have to go around. But the instructor captain Lee Jung Min, he for whatever reason he doesn't do the stabilized approach check. You know, he, he looks and he sees that they're on speed and on glide path, but he doesn't look at the rest and he doesn't call it out stabilized. And we don't really know why he, he missed this, but it's probably just because a lot was going on right at this moment. And, you know, he saw those two things and he thought, oh, it's probably not a big deal. Or he didn't even consciously think about it. You know, it just events, ev again, they're be the pilots are behind the airplane as, as Ari discussed earlier. Well, so the other thing, the other thing is if they had been at the sort of 60% thrust that would be a normal sort of setting for, for a landing with all of these flaps out and the gear down and, you know, all of this, these very high drag devices and the slats open and, you know, the whole thing, um, it, it's much quicker to actually get to go around power from 60 than it is from flight idle, which might only be 10 or 20%. Yeah, that's about to be... Yeah, presumably, if it, if it was running the CM56, that is a very large engge, and that is a it lot of momentum a long, to It takes a while to spin up, yes. So 
So within seconds of this, they begin to descend below the three degree glide path because their descent rate is too high. So as the observer was in fact correctly calling out, so trainee captain Lee Kang-kook begins to pull the nose up to reduce their descent rate. Now, as he pulls the nose up, pulling up causes speed to decrease, right? So the speed decreases as it is wont to do. And he believes when he pulls up, the autothrottle will increase thrust if necessary to maintain VREF plus 5, 137 knots. But remember, it's in hold mode, so it doesn't. So as he pulls the nose up, their speed begins decreasing well below v VREF plus 5. And yet he's still, he's, so he's, when, when the speed is now this low, pulling up isn't as effective. And they continue to descend below the glide path because the energy plane simply do, the plane does not have enough kinetic energy to climb, even if he's pointing the nose up. And in fact, do we know why Lee Kang Cook did not at this point just take manual control of the throttle and push Lee forward? Because he believed he fully believed with every every last bit of his heart the auto throttle was going to do that for him. Literally, he was so conditioned to believe that the auto throttle will maintain under all circumstances the MCP selected airspeed that he it simply didn't even occur to him that it might not, right? And he so he he wasn't even looking at the thrust levers, you know he if they're at you know if he must he must he probably doesn't even know where the, where they're positioned at this point. Is that different from the Airbus that he's used to flying? Um, yeah, in the Airbus, yes, yes, it will always maintain a minimum airspeed. And thrust also works quite a bit different on the Airbus. Basically, the the pilot selects. A thrust sort category, of a zone. you might say. And then the, and the, the, yeah. 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 The, yes. Exactly. You, you select a thrust category, and then the aircraft will use a combination of throttle and tr and, and elevator trim to maintain the, the speed stabilizer that you trim, probably. But, um, yeah. So, so he's, so his attempts to pull up to maintain the glide path are ineffective because the plane has no kinetic energy at this point. So he's, they're now descending too low. He looks at the precision approach path or indicator lights, the pappies, and now they're displaying um, one white and three red lights indicating he's below glide path. So he pitches up even more, but this makes the situation even worse because when he's pitching up and they don't have enough thrust to actually you know, go up, he's just increasing the angle of attack, the, you know, the angle of the plane into the airstream which causes even more drag, which means they lose even more speed. So he's just creating this feedback loop. He's on the backside of the power curve. You know, you you had a slide showing that we removed it. I guess I shouldn't go into too much detail about what that what that means then. But um, I think we do need the next slide though. <laughs> yeah. So so he's pulling up and. The automated voice calls out 200, and and their their airspeed is now 122 knots, which is 15 knots below um, the t MCP target airspeed, and they're still descending at 900 feet per minute. With their noses, they have their their pitch angle is more than seven degrees. Their angle of attack is even higher than that. They still have most of a mile to go until the runway thresholds. This is not a situation you want to be in. This is a situation where you need to go around immediately or there is threat to life and limb.
this continues to develop. The Pappy now shows four red lights, indicating they are dangerously low. And so what does Lee Kankook do? He pulls the nose up even more, but he still doesn't increase thrust because he still fully believes he doesn't have to do that. And so the instructor captain now also sees, hey, we have four red Pappy lights, and he glances down at his airspeed indicator and sees only 120 knots. And he's confused because he also thinks the autothrottle should have automatically held their speed at 137 knots. So he's like, has it the autothrottle malfunctioned? Even he doesn't realize, hey, we're in hold mode, and in hold mode, the MCP airspeed doesn't do anything. So he calls out, he just calls out, it's low. And what is it? Does he mean the airspeed or does he mean the altitude? You know, nobody knows. <laughs> but, well, I mean, they're both low. Both. Right? <laughs> yes. You're, you are the concept of low right now. He calls out, it's low, and Lee Kankook says, yeah. And he doesn't do anything. He just says, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So then, so nobody has advanced the thrust levers. And then at that point, a um, quadruple chime sounds indicating... Um, abnormally low airspeed because they're now down to 114 knots at 124 feet above the water descending at 600 feet per minute with half a mile to the runway so basically they are on track to impact san francisco bay imminently and the um and the automated voice calls out 100 that's the ground proximity warning system and then suddenly instructor captain lee jung min has like a heart attack he's like he's like speed you know we're too slow we're too low we're going to crash and He's, and the trainee captain isn't doing anything about it. So he immediately grabs the thrust levers and he pushes them to full power immediately to, and says, go around. You know, oh shit, go around. But it's at this point, it's already too late. In fact, later the calculations would show the last point at which they could have um, successfully executed a go around without striking the ground was at the moment of the quadruple chime, the low airspeed alert, which was about 11 seconds before impact. And he, he advances the thrust levers to full power seven seconds from impact. And it takes eight seconds to spool up from flight idle to full power on these engines, as you guys were saying earlier. And they don't have eight seconds. You know, the plane is going to continue to descend until that full power is applied. So they're, they're out of time, they're out of altitude. And they're out of energy. Yes. And so you have this... <laughs> These last moments of the cockpit voice recorder, oh shit, go around, 20, go around, 10, oh. I, I also like the sound similar to stick shaker lasting for approximately 2.24 seconds, which you, you would generally take that as a warning that you're about to crash the plane, right? You would, yes. You should. Did, did, did this fundamentally, could this been prevented if we had taken Jay's suggestion to fit all aircraft with JTO bottles? I suggested afterburners. Afterburners. Well, I don't know how fast would it, you know, how fast would afterburners have changed the trajectory of this airplane? Do we I know? think it had bought it a couple of seconds. I don't think afterburners really work when you're at flight idle, though. No, not really. Yeah. So I guess I guess then we are down to Jado bottles. Yeah, I don't know how how many Jado bottles would you need to take a triple seven that's flying at 114 knots at 100 feet above the water and push it upward? You know, probably a lot. <laughs> at least at least three. Didn't they try and do that in Iran that one time with a C-130? 
Yeah, they they tried to get a, um, a special operations C-130 to land and take off in a soccer field. And they had the engineering right. But when they did a test flight, it triggered something like a half a second too early and basically thrust the aircraft straight down into the ground. Uh, it, it broke up and they, they did not try again. Then we had Operation Eagle Claw, which was a disaster. Maybe that'll be a different episode. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. JATO ro- rockets questionable. We'll, we'll put a pin in that. Look, I, I am absolutely on board with anything invented by Jack Parsons. You know that. True. Yeah, no, I think, I think rocket science and cult sex are, are really the two, the two bedrock foundations of this podcast. Are, you know, you don't know if sex magic can get you to the moon or not. You haven't tried. Jack Parsons was doing that science. And we, we thank him. He is a hero to us. Right. So when the um, the cockpit voice recording says sounds similar to impact and that is it is only it is similar to impact because it is in fact the sound of the plane impacting. So they ta- the tail first grazed the water which sent you know a lot of passengers realized they were in trouble even before this but they were really in trouble now. The tail grazed the water for a few seconds and then plowed directly into the three-meter-high stone seawall at a speed of 106 knots. So that's like, what's that? That's like 130 miles an hour or something? Yeah, there thereabouts. <laughs> yeah. Basically hitting a brick wall. Yeah, at 130 miles Or a concrete wall hour. in this case, literally. Yeah, it, well, it's very big bricks. <laughs> but it, um, it's, actually, it's actually a concrete cap on top of enormous volcanic rocks. Yeah, and so this totally obliterated the concrete cap and actually dug those big boulders up and threw them several hundred meters down the runway. So the the tail section broke off, the plane slammed down onto its landing gear and engines, landing gear and engines failed and ripped away, and then the plane started sliding on its belly with no tail section. It did a nearly 360 degree pirouette off of the nose and one wingtip, as you can see in this second still from this security camera footage the plane is sort of back in the air do we do we know what not exactly go around capable no <laughs> what, what what was digging it at this point um the 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 left wing tip okay yeah so, so the, i think it's safe to say at this point this is too late for a go around this is yeah possibly too <laughs> late so yeah the 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 plane sort of did this dramatic violent pirouette up into the air and then it spun nearly completely around and then slammed back down very hard this was a lot of g's and then slid almost immediately to a halt in the grass beside the runway ari i'm 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 not an aeronautical engineer um i'm a different kind of engineer but correct me if i'm wrong this is going to void the warranty on that airframe I do believe so. Yeah, yeah. I think this Magnus and Vox does not cover something of this of this magnitude. Uh, I believe this would be uh, operator error. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. This may be beyond the capabilities of of, of um, speed tape to do anything about. Yeah. They'll have to use the same jacks they used to get the the Alaska plane off the ground. I think they actually ended up using a crane and they put it onto a very large flatbed truck of some kind. Yeah, I, I seem I, to remember them doing that. I actually didn't they use a didn't they use a barge? 
Oh, no, you're right. They did use a barge. Yeah, they floated it out on a barge. Yeah. That makes more sense because yeah, the Jay's water's right. right there. Yeah. I, I think what really is incredible, and we'll see this in the next couple of slides, this aircraft stayed mostly intact through a, an insane amount of kinetic energy being displaced. Yeah. So, you know, I so I personally heard from an, you know, this is like third-hand information, right? I know an air crash investigator who knows the NTSB investigators who were on duty when this happened. And basically, the NTSB started getting a ton of calls from hysterical witnesses that are like, I just saw a wide-body plane cartwheel into the runway at San Francisco. And, like, the people at the NTSB were like, is this legit? You know, are these people, are these people for real? And... It took it took like a few minutes to figure out actually yeah something has happened. <laughs> now now on paper, this is sort of the best case scenario. If if you have to have a wide body crash, this is the best case scenario. You yes. are landing at one of the biggest and most advanced airports in the world in the middle of the day in great weather. Yeah, and as the biggest stroke of luck at all. Of all, except for the tail section, the plane stayed in one piece and the fuel tanks were not breached. So a fire did start, but actually this is this is from the um, one of the this engines. This is a security camera on top of the towers, right? Yeah, that captured took this, this footage. Took this photo. Yeah. The um, so the number two or the right engine had slid off and then become lodged against the for- right side of the forward fuselage, and an oil tank burst and caught fire and probably so it ignited the oil and it ignited ignited grass it probably ignited leaking hydraulic fluid and so a fire was starting but it was not the sort of you know raging inferno that consumes the plane in moments type of thing you have when the fuel tanks are involved but in you know inside the inside of the plane was a mess you know there were slides that inflated inside the plane because the impact exceeded their G limitations and they malfunctioned. And so flight attendants were pinned in their positions by slides that had inflated. And, you know, people had to go find knives to try to stab these and deflate them. And you had, I believe the, the floor actually buckled. So you had a lot of seats had come out of their rails and were basically pressing up against each other. Isn't that right? Um, the seats actually stay almost universally stayed attached to the floor, which is basically a triumph of design after previous accidents where the seats just kind of flew everywhere. So that was actually a big success and reduced injuries and fatalities probably sub- quite substantially. Um, there were a couple of seats that did collapse, but they stayed attached to the floor. Yeah. So, so virtually everyone survived this impact and was most were able to evacuate under their own power. The evacuation didn't start particularly quickly. In fact, the pilots were sort of you know, trying, they were asking air traffic control, you know, what is the condition of our plane? Are they, but... Crashed, so that is the condition of your plane is crashed. But before they could actually figure that out, the flight attendants initiated the evacuation themselves about a minute after the crash because they saw the fire. Right, so they did that Absolute king shit. Yeah. No, as as they should. If, If you see fire... If you're a flight attendant and you see fire outside the plane and the co- the pilot has not called for an evacuation, just evacuate. You know, that's actually what they're and, trying to do. And if you are a passenger and a flight attendant says fire, you should also evacuate. You just take them at their word. They used um, all the exits on the left side here. And, um, and some passengers also walked out the hole at the tail section. And the evacuation was fairly orderly. 
Um, however, there were some people who were seriously injured and trapped, especially in the very back where the G-forces had been a lot higher. And you can see the cabin was sort of crushed down a bit there. And so some people were trapped in that area, especially between collapsed seats. And one of the flight attendants back there um, in the by the 4L and 4R doors was incapacitated. The other managed to help um, was staying on board trying to free these passengers for something like you know, a considerable amount of time after the crash until firefighters managed to get in there and um, pry them out. The last the last person was pulled out of the plane 19 minutes after the crash, by which time the um, the fire had actually spread up inside the, f the fuselage near the front of the plane already by that point. But the worst, the people who fared the worst in this crash were the anyone who wasn't wearing a seatbelt in the very back of the plane, I'm about to get to that, and also the flight attendants in the very back of the plane, not the 4L and 4R flight attendants, but the ones behind even them, or the, the not the 3L and 3R flight attendants, but the ones at the very the very back behind the aft galley, seated in um, in the, the tail section that actually broke off. So the entire area where they were seating was no longer attached to the airplane, and it was thrown some distance down the runway. These flight attendants were all ejected from the airplane, still strapped into their seats. And by some miracle, they all survived. In fact, nobody even knew they were where they were for like 20 minutes until somebody, one of them actually got up and walked toward the plane and somebody saw them. And that's when they realized, you know, oh shit, we left some people behind on the runway. But th those four all made it. So, um, presumably, did they come out of this bulkhead here, where the, the rear bulkhead had been ripped Yeah, they, open? Were, they were seated back there. However, not everyone was so lucky. So, in the end, three people died in this accident. 15 or 16-year-old schoolgirls from China who were part, traveling as part of the same group to attend a Christian summer camp in the U.S. They were all seated in the very back. And... One of them had simply had the misfortune of being beamed by the four left exit door, which came loose inside the plane during the crash. So basically, she was put into a coma by the impact from the door, and she never woke up, which is very unfortunate. And the other two fatalities were believed to have not been wearing their seatbelts, and they were likely thrown bodily from the plane out through the hole in the back as it pirouetted through the air, which is unfortunately not a survivable event. Now, Kira, should we talk about the fire response? In just a sec. Yeah, so one of those okay. one of those victims was found way back down the runway, deceased, and the other was found just forward of the left wing next to that um, that paved path. And that's where the, the fire response thing starts to get interesting. Jay, did you want to talk about that? Yeah, so the fire response thing was kind of complicated. So the thing about SFO is that it isn't actually in San Francisco, it's in San Mateo County. However, the San Francisco Fire Department is actually responsible for the ARFF, the uh, Aircraft Rescue and Firefighting Team. They have these kind of cool looking vehicles that you can see uh, they have a sort of robot arm thing that they can use to spray foam into inaccessible bits of planes. It also has, uh, you can see there right at the, at the top 
of the sort of end manipulator, a pointy thing. And that is actually a pneumatically operated stabby bit. I think that is the technical term. Stabby that can, yeah, right to me. yeah, that's that's correct. Yeah. That can be used to actually open a hole in an aircraft fuselage so that the other bit, which is, I, I believe, technically known as the foam squirty bit, can actually then fill correct. the inside fill the inside of that fuselage with with foam they had a policy of not doing this until everyone had been evacuated this policy existed for no reason it shouldn't have existed it would have potentially made it easier to rescue some of the people who were trapped in the plane yeah if the smoke was getting weren't... fairly heavy yeah by the time ever the last people were being pulled out and it was it was not great conditions in there and it wasn't it wasn't at all necessary for it to be this way this was a relatively small fire and it was burning not particularly energetically so actually deluging the the cabin with with some foam would actually have made that situation much better for the people who were still trapped in there uh, could have yeah. potentially avoided further injuring some of these people, some of whom were quite seriously injured. Yeah, there were a total of 49 people were seriously injured in this accident, and something like over 100 had minor injuries. So, yeah, I mean, there are some people who suffered injuries in this crash severe enough that, you know, they're going to be dealing with them for the rest of their lives. Right? Yeah, yeah. The The next thing, of course, is that because... The SF Fire Department is not actually the San Mateo County Emergency Services. They had a different radio system to the surrounding agencies. At the time, they had a thing called Project 25 because San Francisco is kind of a, a big city. I mean, it's not huge, but it, it's a much bigger city than the small cities on the peninsula that comprise San Mateo County. So it had upgraded its trunked radio system, its public safety radio system, to this digital standard called Project 25. And Hey Jay, I'm sorry, what's a, what is a trunked radio? So they want to be able to do sort of radio things, you know, walkie-talkie type stuff, but walkie-talkie type stuff means small radios. And small radios don't have a lot of range. And obviously, you don't want to have like a satellite or something because that would be really expensive. And you don't want to have to build basically a cellular network because, again, that's really expensive. Cellular networks use microwaves, but these trunked radios use UHF and VHF, which is much lower frequency. So basically, they have these sort of sort of towers that are dotted around the coverage area that can actually receive these signals and broadcast them out to their immediate neighborhood um, in what's called a talk group. But also they can fire it into a cable. Um, it used to be a coaxial cable that they would run all over the place. But nowadays, I, I believe it's mostly over the internet. Um, you know, in, in much the same way that we are currently having this conversation. Uh, they have these sort of 
points of presence of this of this trunked radio system and it gives them push to talk capability that can span dozens of miles of of area um you know if you have a, a large metropolitan area you might have one trunked radio system but then it's broken up into these regional talk groups where you know a particular police precinct and a particular sort of set of fire stations would all be on this on this one talk group so because the because the san francisco fire department is actually 15 miles away from the airport pretty much they had uh, arff had a an agreement a mutual aid agreement with these agencies in san mateo county that if they actually needed if they had a major casualty event as such as you know this a plane crash from a wide body exactly exactly where you know a hundred people are injured uh, of which you know probably 70 of them need ambulances yeah this is this is sort of your 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 worst case scenario right if you're doing a disaster response it's sort of this is up there with like a building collapse in number of casualties that, that, that you're gonna have to treat with that are all going to be fairly severe yeah yeah it's it's very much so i mean this was uh not the worst case because the worst case would have been that it burned with a, a bunch of people who were only barely getting out in which case you know obviously the the number of fatalities would have been much higher and the amount of hospital assistance that they would need would be much higher and I don't know if you've noticed over the last few years what with a certain strain of human malware that's been affecting everyone, but US cities don't actually have a lot of slack in their ability to provide intensive care to uh, people who might have, you know, lung injuries or severe spinal injuries or, you know, these kinds of things. So they had to call in mutual aid from all of these agencies but because the san francisco fire department and therefore sfo's uh, arff had moved to this next generation radio standard but none of the agencies in the area surrounding it had when these ambulances and fire trucks and things started arriving they couldn't talk to each other they actually could not have a conversation. And this lack of communication caused a significant delay in some of these people getting the care that they actually needed. Uh, it was actually a, a huge thing. And even the NTSB, which doesn't normally comment on, on such things, the NTSB was pretty angry about how badly this went. Yeah, you know, there was a, there were like whole sections in the accident report and so on about how, you know, they had these, you know, mass casualty buses that are supposed to go out to the scene and, um, you know, bring all sorts of triage equipment and then, you know, bring injured people back to an ambulance staging point and how just like for ages, nobody call, called them because nobody could figure out how, you know, among many other things. Yeah, and so it was it was basically only a few people died but it was not through good preparation or competent response on the part of the 
emergency services at the airport. Now, there there is there is sort of an asterisk on this, right? Isn't there? Right. Yeah, the the girl who got run over, which is yes. one of the things this accident is most famous for. Exactly. So so she she was first spotted minutes after the crash, lying on the ground. She was she was not moving. She was in a fetal position. Had no outward signs of life, but also no obviously fatal injuries when seen from the exterior. But for some reason, the first firefighters on the scene looked at her and they just said, okay, she is obviously deceased. And the NTSB said in this report actually was not really clear what they made that judgment based on because there was, again, she didn't have any injuries that would qualify as obviously deceased, despite having been thrown from the plane. So they just, they were just like, okay, we'll make a mental note of her position, basically. And this was, they didn't put up, they didn't put a yellow blanket over her as they would normally, they really should do over, you know, confirmed casualties. They didn't, they didn't check her vital signs. They didn't, so firefighting foam is beginning to build up over this area and not everyone has really gotten the message that there's this, this victim there. And, um, so about <laughs> how long after the crash did this happen? It was like, I think it was about 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah, it, it, was... It, was, it was sometime around, yeah, t- okay, 22 minutes after the crash, the um, the girl was run over at slow speed by an airport fire truck Rescue 10 as it was approaching the fuselage with that specialized penetration device to, to penetrate it and um, apply foam to the fire inside the cabin. And they did not realize that they had run over this person um, until sometime later. And when they did, they were just like sort of like, you know, their radio chatter was like, well, shit happens. And, you know, that came out and made a lot of people very angry. Rightly so. (laughs) Notably, it made several Far Eastern governments very angry. Was was not ideal. The thing is, as far as we know, she was probably already dead. And this is this is something this might be news to a lot of people um, because the story is often repeated that she was alive. And yet there's quite a lot of evidence that, that was not the case. So basically the the reason there has been a lot of reporting that she was alive is because the San Mateo County coroner came out and said, you know, based on my autopsy report, she was still alive. But his own autopsy report didn't really have any analysis supporting that conclusion. It just, it just sort of listed what her injuries were. And one of her injuries was a lacerated aorta consistent with massive deceleration, which is typically a fatal injury and was probably associated with her being flung from the plane at 130 miles an hour and then hitting the ground. Yeah, that's that injury is called a, a, an, an internal decapitation, unfortunately. Um, yeah, you don't survive that. I don't think that's I don't think it's an internal decapitation. But um, yeah, and not to mention that, you know, she had all these other injuries, basically the same as the other girl who was ejected and found dead. And furthermore, if you know she was buried in dust and firefighting foam before she was run over, and if she was alive during that period, she should have inhaled some of that into her if she was breathing. But n- there was no trace of any of that found in her trachea. Yeah, so, and also if you haven't been breathing for twenty-two <laughs> minutes, you're probably already dead. Yes, exactly. And you know there was a um, furthermore, you know there was a whole lawsuit brought by the um, the girl's family against the city of San Francisco over for running her over and that eventually ended with no settlement um they've just dropped the case 
they dropped or they, they dropped the lawsuit. They never received any kind of settlement because and we don't really know why. You know, this has never been unsealed, but we think it's probably because there was pretty pretty much um irrefutable Conclusive evidence. evidence. She was she was not alive when she was run over. Um even though, you know, I, I think there's probably something some value to be had in, you know, damages for, you know, disrespect of a deceased person. <laughs> but like, you know, it was you know, you, they really should have done better. They shouldn't have run her over even if she was already dead, is my opinion. I don't think that's a controversial hot take. No. I, I mean, I mean they shouldn't they shouldn't have done but a it's lot not, of things. It well, yes. Uh, it's not quite as bad as you know, running someone over who is still alive. You say yeah. actually it's quite a lot less bad. It's yeah, it's there there is a there is a large difference there. Yeah, but still bad. Let's let's All right. Okay. So, I think if we if we talk about CRM, so this is career resource management, right? And this is a a training it's a training item, but it's also a cultural shift. And what it essentially presupposes is that there is no hierarchy in a cockpit. There's a final decision maker. Well, there is, is a the hi- there is a hierarchy, but there, there's a hierarchy but- as far as decision making, but nobody's opinion matters more than anybody else. Everybody's mm-hmm. view is considered, and problems are are solved collectively. Right. So it's not you know that there's whether it's you fly the aircraft while I try to diagnose this problem or. You know, you work the radios, right? So, and I want to get out in front of this and say the problem here wasn't that there was a hierarchy where there shouldn't have been. It's more that simply there was no communication at all, or at least the communication that took place was not about the right things. And yeah, and so I think that this 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 crash we'll run into this in a few accidents in this podcast, but I think this crash has a sort of undercurrent of racism for a lot of people, where there is a a sort of I don't want to call it a myth or an urban legend that one of the reasons that Lee Kang Cook did not speak up was that he felt that he was he was not allowed to speak up to a superior officer. And I don't. That's no, definitely it, it, that's it, misunder. That's, yeah, that misunderstands yeah. what actually happened. You know, the person who didn't speak up was the instructor, Captain Lee Jung Min. You know, he was the one who who knew who figured out what was going on and should have said, "Hey, wait a minute." You know, my controls going around and he should have done that a lot earlier than he actually did because the situation was dangerous from you know at least 30 seconds before the crash and he didn't do anything until seven seconds before the crash even though he knew you know our speed is too low you know the auto throttle is not maintaining the mcp speed you know he he should have known they were in a dangerous situation and he did know they were in a dangerous situation and he was he was sort of handicapped by the fact that he was, this was his first training flight, and Lee Kang-kook had done very well throughout the flight up until that point. And he was not totally clear on, you know, when does he need to, when do does he need to intervene versus letting the trainee captain mess up? You know, at what point does it go from he's not doing a good job to he's being dangerous? And the the joke answer yeah. is impact, but the real answer probably would have been somewhere around the do yet waypoint. Yeah, or at least at the um, you know the stabilized approach point, or where they were not stabilized, or even a little bit later when he looked down at his airspeed indicator and he saw 120 knots and they were and three reds on the pappies. You know, any of these points, he could have said, you know, this isn't this isn't going well. You know, he had the power to say something. He, I mean, he was in the he was in the he outranked. 
the trainee captain, but he let the trainee captain just fly the plane into the ground, basically. And part of part of the reason I think that this happened is because he also did not have a good understanding of what the plane was doing on the automation level. So we, we need to talk a bit about understanding of the automation on the Boeing 777, because the after this crash, the NTSB asked a bunch of Asiana Airlines pilots and instructor captains specifically, you know, when will the autothrottle not provide low speed protection? You know, when will the autothrottle allow the speed to fall below the MCP selected airspeed? Because there are conditions where it will do this, unlike on an Airbus where there normally are not. And most of the instructor captains knew that if the autothrottle was in hold mode, there would be no low speed protection. So they asked five Asian instructor captains. One said he only learned that this could happen after the accident. Another said he was completely unaware of this exception. This is an instructor captain. Did not know that if the autothrottle is in hold mode, it won't maintain the MCP airspeed. And this, this touches on you know, an issue that this automation is really complex and it takes, you know, it takes a while to get used to it and understand it. And so it's understandable that Lee Kankook didn't know how it worked. You know, pilots say it typically takes at least 300 hours or so on a plane to sort of feel like you actually understand the, um, its automation. And he had only 43 hours. So it's not that surprising that he didn't understand it. But the instructors didn't understand it either. And that was a big problem because it, during his training, Lee Kankook had been shown how the autothrottle will wake up, even if it's turned off, and, you know, to, to prevent the um, the plane from decelerating below the MCP airspeed. He was like, you know, wow, that's incredible. It's just like the um, low speed protections on the Airbus A320, only it wasn't. There wasn't really any discussion during training of the exceptions. When will this not happen? And so he came in fully believing with this completely, you know, unquestioned faith from his, that the low speed protection on the 777 was just like the low speed protection on the Airbus that he was used to flying, and it just wasn't. And so there was some criticism of Boeing over this because um, the Boeing 787 has the same auto throttle system, and back when that airplane was being certified, the F an FAA um, test pilot found out about this when he, um, you know, he accidentally got the auto throttle into into hold mode and discovered, wait a minute, it's not maintaining my MCP airspeed, and there's no kind of indication about this, and it's barely mentioned in the manual. And so he said to Boeing, hey, you have to change your manuals to very explicitly call this out. So they did, but they didn't change the manuals for the 777, even though it has the same auto throttle system. What? Wait, wait, wait. You're saying... Listeners, you're... listeners, Boeing, Boeing not putting things in manuals will become a thing on this podcast. Oh, yeah. I, I was going to say, I mean... That that's like their main thing, isn't it? Yeah. So the manual did sort of say it was possible to determine from the manual that this would happen, but it wasn't. It wasn't like called to the reader's attention in any significant way. And after this crash, they did change so that it was. But um, the design of the system actually didn't change. And one of the NTSB members dissented and said, actually, we should have recommended that they change this design because the auto throttle not maintaining the MCP airspeed in hold mode is stupid. <laughs> but the NTSB as a whole did not um, endorse that position. Just one guy. It is it is my take, and maybe even the take of this podcast, that there should be a policy that if a plane has a kill all humans mode, you remove that mode. And it does require on the pilot not paying attention, but this sort of it's sort of conducive to 
happening in moments when the pilot is not paying attention because the easiest way to get into the autothrottle into hold mode in a situation like this is by is by accident when the situation is already becoming overly complex which is exactly what happened here and so the chances that the pilot will notice this are reduced simply because of the fact that the situation is most likely to occur in a in the midst of another situation that's already complicated and that's that's potentially a safety hazard. I mean, it was a safety hazard in this case. Yeah, yeah, it was a safety hazard right at the point that this plane hit the seawall. Right. So to be to be absolutely absolutely clear, there are aviation accidents that have happened because of company culture or even national culture with a, a very strong authority gradient in the cockpit. And the, these have happened, but this wasn't one of them. Yeah, This is exactly. not one of them. It was not. And um, it... If, if we can blame something on corporate there culture, was, there was it cor- would be... Okay, corporate culture did did play a role. Yes. Absolutely. The corporate, the corporate policy basically of insisting that Asiana pilots use as much automation as possible and barely ever giving them any manual flying training, which left basic, really everyone involved unprepared to fly what was really... You know, which is a complicated approach, you know, from a layman's perspective, you know, trying to do all of that energy management, but also something that should be a fundamental of flying for anyone who is a captain on the Boeing 777. And actually the fact that Lee Kang-kook didn't really know how to do this while being a captain on the Boeing 777 may have made him really self-conscious. I think he didn't ask for help doing this and he didn't you know, he didn't say, I can't do it. You know, we need to go around. And part of the reason for that might have simply been that, you know, the expectation was that he'd be able to do this and everybody else approaching San Francisco that day was able to do it. And, you know, so why shouldn't he be able to do it too? And that's that can be a, that can be a really insidious mindset. Interestingly, actually, on, on that sort of note, before they started the approach... Um, when they were still actually above 10,000 feet and so they didn't have the sterile cockpit rule. They actually had this long conversation about the medical requirements, um, whether they wanted to wear sunglasses or not because of the sun sunlight dazzling them while they're trying to land the plane and whether they whether they had depth perception when they're wearing sunglasses. They also had a conversation about Jeju Air, which is a low-cost carrier in in South Korea, and that they knew someone else who was at Air Busan, which is a smaller low-cost carrier in in South Korea. They mentioned that Jeju's physicals are more lenient, but that the benefits of working for this company aren't as good. And it's possible that, uh, again, they didn't want to step outside of the chai ball that they'd been working for for their entire careers at this point. Yeah, I mean, that may be getting a little bit abstract from the, the situation at hand. But um, there was there was also the fact, again, you have to remember Lee Kang-kook was on his initial operating experience. So if he, if he made a serious mistake, that would be reported because it may indicate, and it should be reported because it may indicate that he needs more training. And, you know, I mean, that's just embarrassing. It's inherently human to feel that that's embarrassing. That also could have contributed to, you know, him wanting to salvage this approach, even after repeated signs that it it was going wrong. And, 
yeah, you know, sometimes it's not, a, there are more important things than your pride. Yeah. We don't know for sure, you know, was pride a factor here, but you know, actually I remember one of the NTSB investigators, I think it was, I think it was Bill Bramble who um, was interviewed or maybe it was Bill English. I don't know. It was one of, it was one of the bills. NTSB investigators interviewed on the Kira's in with these guys. That's she's 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 got them on the first name basis. <laughs> um, yeah, I was interviewed in the Mayday episode in this crash and said, you know, why didn't Lee Kang Kook um, say this approach is is not salvageable? And his quote was, I think he just didn't want to admit the weakness, and that's kind of harsh, but also possibly true, because. There were so there were so so many signs that this wasn't going going well, and he saw a lot of them, and he just kept going. This is it's sort of an abstract thought, but it it feels like this is a crash that was caused by too much trust, mm-hmm. too much trust in the automation systems, too much trust in each other, right? So, and I'm not saying that the guys shouldn't have trusted each other, but nobody ever questioned the situation. No, until not it was, really. Until it was far too late, nobody said, "Guys, this is an unsalvageable approach." Right. Let's let's just go around. Let's you know we'll figure it out. Or nobody said we're too high. What again? Speed brakes. Why hasn't anybody deployed the spoilers? Like there was, there should be below ten thousand feet. There should be constant communication about the landing. Yeah. And there was and nothing else. And there was basically the communication that took place was you're too high. Okay, I will do something about it. There was not the you know callouts of you know what the you know the pilots were changing modes and things without calling it out like Lee Kang Kook Lee Kang Kook selected flight level change speed mode without calling it out without discussing this with the instructor you know if he had said oh you know do you think I should you know I'm, I think I should select flight level change speed mode to um you know to help us decrease decrease the speed the instructor captain probably would have said no that's a terrible idea but he just did it you know, and you're supposed to call these things out. It's 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 yeah. com- it was company policy. It's company policy at pretty much every every airline. When you talk about CRM and and collective problem solving, being consistently too high and being behind the energy curve on a descent is a problem that they should have been working to solve. Yeah, and there was there was no indication that they they saw this that way. And so first they had too much energy, and then they didn't have enough. Yeah, and that it tends to go that way. <laughs> you know, a large proportion of um, flights that land short of the runway started out being too high, which doesn't it doesn't make sense unless you're a pilot. <laughs> if you are a pilot, it probably makes total sense that you know you have to um, you're too high. You have to try to bleed off this this height, you know, and then suddenly you're you're in a rapidly developing situation, much more so than if you're sedately descending along that glide path. It doesn't take all that much to, um, you know, let things go too far. Yeah, the irony is if, if they were too low, if they were below the glide slope, this probably would have been easier to save. Oh, because with, if they were oh, undoubtedly, and then, and that's yeah. why that's why it's it's always policy to intercept the glide path from below, and trying to do it from above is discouraged and probably some airlines possibly not allowed. I'm not totally sure about that, but yeah. Yeah. Don't they have a name for that? Like they call it something like a slam dunk or something. Yeah. Slam dunk is when you approach the glide path from above. 
and it's not encur- it's not encouraged. It's like it's like dive bombing, yeah. Yeah. But at the end of the day, this is sort of a sort of a cautionary tale about neglecting, you know, fundamentals of piloting and how there were there were simple simple things these pilots could have done to just fly the plane on on the glide path and instead they just kept getting deeper and deeper bogged down into modes you know the fact that the the trainee captain's first thought when he was too fast is change the um is try to change the autopilot mode instead of um changing the configuration of the airplane is kind of telling and this was this was something that was encouraged by the the company culture and I want to quote um, Robert Sumwalt, who is a now the who is the a member of the investigation team, who said um, that this encouragement of over reliance on automation um, quote caused this highly experienced pilot with an unblemished record to be uncomfortable about manually accomplishing a very basic task, landing on an eleven thousand foot runway on a clear day with very little wind. Yeah, this would have been a dream approach to hand fly. This would have been ludicrously easy to hand fly well i mean if yeah when you're trained to hand fly obviously i couldn't do it i've never flown a triple seven but um but he should have been he should have been able to do it and the company was systematically on leaving these pilots unprepared to do that in a situation where they they had to they had no choice but to do that because the again the glide slope was out of service it all started from that yeah, you, you're. We we have a couple of these accidents. Obviously, Air France four four seven, which we'll a hundred percent be covering, um, falls in this category of of pilots that get behind the that get behind the aircraft, that get behind the energy curve. But it's also sort of a fundamental misunderstanding of what the aircraft is doing at a mm-hmm. time when the when the industry had become over reliant on automation. Yeah, and since and since this crash, there's it's beca- this crash has become a um, major training topic in at airlines around the world as the industry has moved away from the idea that we should use as much automation as possible 100% of the time there's been a there's been a renaissance of basic basic flying skills because of this crash and others like Air France 447 that you mentioned and that's been a positive outcome of this and so most pilots who fly large airliners are probably fam- quite familiar with this crash simply because it's it's such a big training topic yeah for sure yeah and that's a good thing cuz it was part of a trend and it's a trend that has been going away thanks to this recognition so shall we talk about some racism yeah let's talk about racism before we end oh boy if you were on reddit you have seen this image ktvu mm-hmm. actually broadcast this to millions of people in the bay area yeah after allegedly receiving these names from an NTSB intern who thought he was very funny. At least that's the story. We don't really know for sure, but that's that's what they claim happened. Is they called somebody gave them these names. They called an NTSB intern to ask, "Are these the names of the pilots?" And the intern was like, "That's hilarious." Internally, and said, "Yeah, they totally are." And obviously, I'm pretty sure that intern was fired. But um, that's that's allegedly what happened. We don't know who came up with these originally. I wouldn't be surprised if they originated on 4chan. To be honest. Yeah, that would track. And, and I do just want to say, if you are the type of person that finds this funny, please get fucked and please do not listen to our podcast. We do not want you as a fan. No, like yeah. it was it was never it was never really that funny. It was it was racist and then like people still repeating it ten years later is just 
it's just what are you what are you doing i mean it's it, it was it was not funny then it's definitely not funny a decade later and yet you can go to any reddit thread about asian 214 and sort by controversial to find legions of brain dead trogs commenting something long like it's the funniest thing they've ever heard i just don't understand if you find this funny take a good long hard look in the mirror or if you i mean if you if you still find it funny to comment this under reddit threads especially i i'm fairly sure that not only did that ntsb intern get fired but so did whoever it was was the writer for ktvu because this should never have gone out on the air. I mean, no, if they was obvious that this is a joke. Like, if they'd if they'd checked it before broadcasting it, this would not have happened. It couldn't possibly have happened. Who could think this was real? What kind of idiot would you have to be? I really don't know. Ha- have you been on 4chan? That kind of idiot. Well, yeah, but I mean, no, on 4chan, they'd be completely aware that this is fake and a joke. It's, why did KTVU broadcast this? I mean, I don't know. We'll never know, probably. We'll never know. Nobody's going to admit that they looked at this and saw yet thought, yeah, that's totally real. Yeah, and it's it's unfortunate that this is this is what the crash is famous for. This yeah, is it literally is. About this that's what I said. You can go to any Reddit thread, <laughs> and there's just so many people underneath it just commenting this over and over. Like, Why? You're not right. be, you're not being original. Some people some people see the dive to the bottom and they think I can go lower. I can yeah, I can be I can be more more offensive. Um, but guys, just you're not being offensive. You're not being edgy. Foreign name sounds different. Stops being funny when you're about seven. Literally, but of course, I mean that's the seven is probably the average age of people commenting in red threads anyway. So that's that's fair. All right, do we have any final thoughts to, to wrap up Asiana or Asiana two fourteen? Was there anything else that was learned from this that we didn't mention? I don't think so. You know, there's there was no need to change anything physically on the aircraft, right? Well, I mean, no, of... I mean, I think it could have used some, I guess, the software update. <laughs> I, I should have said no, there was no airworthiness directives, right? There was no, no there mandatory weren't. grounding. Nothing was right. actually changed. So the, the some wording, the wording in the manual was changed to really explicitly call out that this can happen. And obviously, I, I... obviously, every triple seven pilot now knows this can happen. You can't go through life as a triple seven pilot and not hear about it because obviously yeah, we're, we're not going to replicate this failure mode. Right. But, but I would say, and Kira, maybe you can see if you guys agree with me that, that what this aircraft changed was the broader culture, right? This yeah, is, like I you said, this was totally up there with agree. 447. Yeah. This, this, it changed, it changed the way that airlines think about training their pilots. That's absolutely true. And that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a really positive change. That's probably more positive than any, modification to the 777 that could have been made. Possibly more visible to residents of the Bay Area, or I don't know, maybe not, was that the radio systems used by San Mateo County and San Francisco all got moved on to Project 25 and all of those radios are now preloaded with mutual aid talk groups and encryption keys so that if they have a major casualty event actually anywhere in the bay area the the emergency services responding to that can actually talk to each other now which is something that actually actually came came directly out of this that's awesome yeah yeah that's really cool so fair amount was learned which is yeah yeah we're not going to be we're not going to be the ones who end the podcast saying nothing was learned just (laughs) 
when stuff is learned. No, for, for the most part, almost every crash, I think we're going to be able to come away and say that a lot of positive things came out of it. At least some. 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 There are some crashes where I can't say that, but this is not one of them. This one had a lot of positive change, which is a nice okay. note to end on, I guess. All right. Uh, everybody, the next episode will be on Malaysia Air 370. Totally. We're being Absolutely. completely honest about that.